0: Welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult Rx Podcast. Cole,
1: what's good, man? Everything. Everything. Everything's good. Yes. We're moving into fall weather. Yes. That's been around awesome. the corner.
0: The fall weather has been quite
1: nice. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but Mike, and more specifically his wife, Decks out their house for every single holiday you could possibly imagine. Yep. I mean, literally,
0: like, she'll celebrate holidays that we don't even normally recognize just for the (laughs) sole purpose of decorating.
1: There's giant spiders on their house right now. Yep. Along with, I couldn't even soak it all in as I was walking. It's preposterous. My question is, where do you keep all the stuff?
0: We, oh, well, funny you should ask. We had to install storage bins for all of our decorations that (laughs) line those ceilings of our uh, garage. So, yeah. We had to make it work, (laughs) you know, for the holiday spirit. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, she loves decorating.
1: There are some kind of distressing... Decorations in our neighborhood. If you've driven around a little bit, I will say Halloween. I feel like is the big one for our neighborhood. It's it is because
0: they they have some people that spend some money on the decorations. Yes,
1: and every time my son walks by and sees a ghost, he's like, "Ghost? Oh no! I don't know where he got this. But, like he learned to be scared of ghosts." I'm like, "But they're not scary. It's fine." And then I walk by a house and I'm like, "That is scary. That is kind of whacked up." Like you I go, I go, "Oh not no, have that ghost!" In your yard. <laughs> it's like disturbing. That's way awesome. too much blood to be yeah. for public. There's like summer.
0: one cul-de-sac in particular. Yes, it's like that. they all
1: compete. I guess they all obviously friends or something, but they compete with who can have the craziest. So one guy has like a hundred skeletons of different sizes.
0: Yeah, and it looks like he digs up his yard. It's like like, there's no yard. It's It's just
1: complete skeletons.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. Anyways, we're not talking about skeletons or Halloween tonight. We're actually talking about uh, you guessed it, chronic kidney disease.
1: <laughs> Great transition. Yeah,
0: so uh, we'll we'll work on that. But uh, if we, I don't think we've done we've done a couple cases and stuff. But I don't think we've done an overview of CKD
1: in a while. It's one of those things that gets touched on in a variety of topics, but doesn't get its own topic. Yeah, doesn't get its own episode.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and realistically, I mean, it should be really broken down into various topics within CKD. Obviously, for those of you who are about to correct us, anyway, yeah, I, we're not saying that you know we're we're we don't think agree with that um, but we're just trying to summarize it to give a, you know kind of an overview so we'll use this as a uh, sort of putting some of the pieces together that we've talked about individually and whatnot yeah so yeah that being said this is also an accredited episode so for those of you who are free ce uh, unlimited members you can get access to all of our accredited episodes but after you listen to this episode at some point we'll give you a password to use go to freece web uh, freece.com And put in the password, you'll have access to the post-activity test, and you'll get one hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses, and uh, yeah, take advantage of that. And if if you're not a member of them, please check out their library of content, a lot of really good stuff in there. Yes. So, thank you to them, as always, for partnering. Cole, what do you want to start off, man?
1: Start from the beginning. Chronic kidney disease, CKD.
0: CKD.
1: What is it? We... um know that it's a progressive disease that results in a decline in GFR or the glomerular filtration rate. There's various ways to measure it that we'll touch on. Um, It's very common. About 15% of adults have CKD. It's about one in seven people. Um, And it's uh, categorized into stages. Um, stage one would indicate normal renal function. That's considered greater than 90 milliliters per minute for creatinine clearance or, or GFR, um, with signs of renal damage. Um, there's a number of, um, uh, things that you would see or things that you would need to do for stage one, right? For stage one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, albuminuria. Um, you could see urine sediment abnormalities, red or white casts may indicate tubular inflammation or glomerular injury. Um, a history of kidney transplant would be assumed renal damage, and uh, a biopsy could confirm renal damage yeah. as well.
0: I, that always was like I remember being in school and saying like, well, if you're stage one CKD and you know you put your EGFRs over 90, all right, well, oh no, I have CKD. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the renal damage in addition to that normal renal function definitely makes a lot more sense. But uh, the stages, like Cole said, um, you'll see them abbreviated also into further categories, um, subcategories. Should say, I should say it class three, and uh, so you'll see stage three CKD is split into A and B, and um, basically you know, stage two being eighty to up to eight, or sixty up to eighty nine, stage three A being forty five to sixty, three B being thirty to forty four, um, four, 15 to twenty nine, stage five is kidney failure less than fifteen.
1: Yes. Um, I mentioned creatinine clearance before, and there's uh, it can be calculated. Um, it has some patient-specific factors along with some um, uh, modifiers that stay the same, but it takes into account the patient's age and their weight, and then their serum creatinine. So that's something that can obviously be um, drawn. So a creatinine clearance is not something that can be drawn in a blood draw. It's calculated based on their serum creatinine and then some patient-specific factors. Um, There are other calculations, but I think that, um, for the most part, you're going to see the Cockroft-Galt um, calculation used. Yeah, well, and hopefully you're using a lab that is just reporting... Uh the egfr right. you know
0: anyway and you're not having to actually use these calculations but right have you um, ever had to manually do it? No, well no. i mean like that's cool school. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah they uh but yes most of your your uh, basic metabolic panels complete metabolic panels will have egfr listed on there yes and in the background it's performing that calculation and uh, I don't know if I don't know if we were even planning on talking about this, but most of the labs should be updated now. But t- typically speaking, you should see in one eGFR for all patients. Like they're they used to back in the day, split it into African American patients and non-African American patients, and have two different eGFRs listed. Um, that's no longer done that way. They've updated the calculation and and all that. So um, it should just be one eGFR listed for all patients. Um, so albuminuria is something we're going to be talking about, um, you know, a little bit today as well, and the reason why this is, is an important indicator of, you know, sort of the CKD progression um, is because, you know, it can kind of show that, that, um, that potential for damage and further damage um, to the kidneys that are, may already be there, or like with stage one, you haven't even lost the kidney function yet, but if there's albuminuria present, we know that that's the direction it most likely will go. The uh, Kidago guidelines recommend monitoring albuminuria every four to six months once a patient hits hitch stage three, and then every three to four months once they reach stage four and five. Um, so it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. Um, usually they'll get a urine albumin-creatinine ratio, and then you'll be able to kind of identify if there's protein in the urine. Um ACEs, ARBs, and non calcium channel blockers can be used in situations as, as well as uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. We'll talk about that as well um, because they, they can all decrease um, the risk of proteinuria and decrease albuminuria and uh, can be good tools for, for keeping the, the kidneys healthier longer if albuminuria is present as well as controlling blood pressure and potentially diabetes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um. And some heart failure benefit as well.
0: So many benefits. So There's many things. What a home run.
1: All you have to deal with is genitourinary infection. Yeah. Um, yeah, SGLT2s. So along with those, it can be beneficial. And it, it doesn't matter if the patient has diabetes or not. In proteinuric CKD, it's been shown to be beneficial. Um, a couple of trials, the DAPA CKD trial with Farsiga um, looked at patients with an EGFR between 25 and 75. Um And they also had a urine um, albumin to creatinine ratio of 200 to 5,000. And after two and a half years, it reduced all-cause mortality, incidence to in stage kidney disease, um, and the risk of 50% or greater decline in EGFR was reduced as well. Um, And the effect was similar regardless of of diabetes status um, and regardless of um, EGFR being less than 30, even a non-severe CKD. The IMPA kidney trial with um, Jardians was um 10 milligrams versus placebo. Um, their EGFRs in that study were 20 to 44, um, regardless of albuminuria, or 45 to 89, when the albumin to creatinine ratio was greater than 200. And at two years, um, Jardians reduced the incidence of end-stage kidney disease um, and the incidence of sustained decline in EGFR uh, to 10. So kind of reduced it from declining to... Um, uh, to um, re- in stage renal disease, I suppose, uh, and the risk of mortality was similar between empagliflozin and placebo, so it didn't decrease the risk of all-cause mortality or anything like that. Yeah, so
0: let's talk about the staging for albuminuria, and I'm actually going to switch over for those of you who are watching the video version, um, so you can see these because I have them listed out here. I don't know why this this Y is hanging under here. it's just category, and it, I just made the b- the it's box too category small. Category Y. Category Y, yeah. So the, the stages for urea are A1, A2, and A3. A1, you know, it would indicate that the albumin creatinine ratio is less than 30, um, which would be considered you know normal to possibly mildly increased. Um, if it's A2, that is an albumin creatinine ratio of 30 to 300, which is moderately increased, and then A3 is greater than 300,
1: severely increased. And the Cadigo guidelines back in 2012 did put out um, kind of a heat map um, based on their uh, categories with either the stage 1 through 5 staging or the A1, A2, A3. And depending on their combination of albuminuria and um, decline in EGFR, it recommends whether you should monitor, and they're at low risk, medium risk, and then at high risk, and you need to refer them to a a kidney specialist. So kind of helpful for the primary care folks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like when, because I feel like that's the thing that happens a lot is primary care will just CCKD and that's it. They automatically refer instead of just at least starting some of the management in-house. And uh, they also give guidance on how often that patients should have their EGFR monitored as well as, you know, albuminuria category. And uh, basically if the patients are at A1 or A2, and there is stage one or stage two of kidney disease. They they'd only needed to get it one time per year. It, if any patient who at that point who goes to A three, it goes to twice a year, and um, it, you know, increases from there, and then it gets to uh, G stage G three. If you have A one albumuria, then you can do it one time a year still. If you have A2, then that's when it goes up to twice a year, three times a year with the A3. And then it just continues to increase from there. And so if you look at the uh, the guidelines, the Codigo guidelines, they have a really nice chart. I have it on the screen now if you're watching the video version, and you can kind of see the how it's laid out. And it's a good, good reminder of when and how often to monitor. I, I feel like a lot of times this is nowhere near how often. We're actually monitoring this kind of thing.
1: Yeah, apparently they call that a heat map. Yeah, you ever heard it referred to that way? Not that particular one, but I guess that makes sense. It does make sense, but I I never really heard it that way. Because the the hotter
0: it gets, the more things you either population or whatever. You've heard a heat map map when it comes to population, like I guess that's what that's called. Yeah, Yeah, I guess
1: I don't know that term was not familiar to me, but Mm. yes, that is that's that's what it is. Now it's re familiar. Let's go. We'll say that extremely familiar now.
0: So familiar, and
1: it is to all of you as well who can see it. yeah, who can actually? We're watching the YouTube. S- <laughs> subscribe pod- today. This is a podcast, after all. That is true. Um,
0: so yeah, some so, complications that we're gonna kind of go through, and we'll spend some time with each of these. Um, specifically, I feel like anemia. You know, that one can get confusing with CKD, and then uh, mineral and bone you know, disorders is a is a huge one that I feel like is very confusing. Um, we'll touch on a metabolic acidosis and um, elevated phosphate levels and all that as well. So uh, start off with an, anemia. Yeah. Um, yeah, anemia is one of those situations where it, it, we kind of think CKD. We we associate, especially as it more as it progresses, we associate that kind of with a high likelihood you know of, of developing anemia. Um, it's it's sort of inevitable in a lot of patients that have CKD. Um, statistically, twenty percent of patients with stage three B um, have will will develop anemia uh, in addition to their CKD, and then 50, over fifty percent of stage four will have issues with anemia. So by definition, um, they would define anemia as a hemoglobin level of less than twelve for women and less than thirteen in men. And why do we care other than the you know, the symptomatic issues with with uh, anemia, you know, fatigue and and whatnot? Why do we care from a CKD standpoint if you know the patient's anemic or not? Um, well, we know that it increases the risk of, of heart failure and left ventricular hypertrophy, which is definitely not a comorbidity that we would like to have to. Deal with. And then uh, it also de- increases the risk of anemia, increases the risk of hospitalization, increases the risk of blood transfusions, even mortality. And so it is something that we would ideally want to maintain under control and um, hopefully prevent from happening in the first place if we can.
1: There are some labs you're going to want to monitor in this case um, CBC, reticulocyte count, iron panel, um, vitamin B12, and folic acid. LFTs and uh, TCH as well.
0: So there's kind of a big question that comes up with anemia in the setting of CKD, and that is whether or not we are going to be supplementing with iron, just like we would with iron deficiency anemia, or if we're going to be using erythropoietin stimulating agents, ESAs, um, which are oftentimes used for more advanced CKD as well. And so the big thing when you're assessing anemia, you know, in a patient with CKD, regardless of kind of where where they're at in their CKD progression, um, it's it's an important thing to consider. Do are they going to need iron? Because iron should ideally be started first before the ESA. If you are going to end up needing both agents, and so making sure the patient does not need iron is a good you know place to start, so that you know you can go on to the ESAs if needed. Um, so when we're talking about a um, an iron deficiency anemia, it can be an an absolute iron deficiency, which is severely reduced or just an absent uh, storage iron in the bone marrow, or functional iron deficiency which can be from, you know, anemia due to chronic disease. Well, we've talked about that in the past. And then also to, you know, um, hepcidin levels, which are increased in in, inflammatory uh, mediators and whatnot, Um, they can be increased in chronic disease, but also are increased in CKD patients. And um, that is one of the... the, um, messengers, basically, that will inhibit the release of iron from storage and, and release it into the, the plasma. And so it's it's one of those things that if uh, that those levels are high, you can't really get around that and it's going to potentially cause some iron deficiency anemia. Um, you know, it's not like the person's having any kind of blood loss or anything like that. Now, th- there's also some, some things to consider because we always, when we're assessing iron deficiency anemia, we usually look at ferritin. And ferritin is, you know, kind of one of those first things. You sometimes some, some clinicians will get a ferritin level without even checking a serum iron and whatnot, because mm-hmm. if, if it's iron deficiency anemia, just in and of itself, ferritin's usually low. A lot of times, you they'll say less than thirty, less, sometimes even lower. But uh, if a patient has CKD, their ferritin level is actually going to be elevated. And, and that's just a baseline. Even if there's no anemia, their ferritin level, we would expect to go up a little bit. And so we can't use that same marker for ferritin as we would with a patient without CKD um, because their ferritin at baseline is going to be a lot lower than the CKD patient. So that, that inflammation, like we just talked about, in- increases that ferritin level as well as affects iron overall. But that's why it, it, one of the reasons they can inf- increase ferritin is because of... Um, Various, you know, inflammatory mediators and stuff. It's it's almost like a a sign of inflammation systemically. Um, usually, if you have a rheumatoid condition or something, you'll see a ferritin level it's also elevated. So we can't really use the ferritin as as the marker like we we would, or at least we have, to, we have to change our reference range. And so from a assessment standpoint, we're looking for a, fer- a ferritin level of less than 100 in a patient with CKD, and then we also would want to see or see a TSAT of less than or equal to 20%. And, you know, it's usually we're not going quite that low with, again, non-CKD patients, but... Um, the ferritin's the big one that uh, we have to keep in mind because I feel like that gets overlooked quite a bit. It won't even show up, you know, red on the labs.
1: Right. Transferring saturation. Yeah. T-Sat. T-Sat. Not one you hear about a lot. Yeah. It's Outside on there. I just, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things you have to either abbreviate yourself or to sound cool. <laughs>
1: right. does sound cool. Sounds like you need some, sounds like you really need some sweet tea. I need some tea sat Yeah. Right.
0: And also didn't quite understand what the phrase was because he didn't watch the with the captions on. <laughs>
1: yeah, something like that. Um, so there is kind of a debate around oral iron supplementation. Um, historical dosing would be. Daily administration. I feel like we touched on this. We must have touched on we, this in our we, anemia episode. Yeah, we did.
0: And so this would be a refresher. We,
1: we touched on this before, but it is an important point.
0: But this, yeah, and this is assuming the patient does need iron. Yes.
1: Obviously. This so is, their their
0: setter is less than twenty, less than or equal to twenty percent. Ferritin is less than or equal to one hundred. Now they we are
1: going to do iron because we want to start iron before ESAs. I want to make sure I said that clearly. Right. Start iron before ESAs, and this would be somebody who's indicated for iron. So historically, you would administer it daily with a goal elemental iron. Um, intake of 200 milligrams per day and you could split that up to three times a day to get to 200 milligrams um more recently uh they use alternate day administration with a goal of about 65 milligrams per day in a single dose um it's a lot less way less way less a and lot less often
0: th- th- there's a good like kind of a review um of it on up to date i believe and uh kind of talking about how i mean how, I mean, 100 to 200 milligrams a day. I mean, can you imagine taking three ferrosulfates a day? It'd I be know. Terrible. Stomach would be killing Yeah. Me. And so the, the, the alternate day dosing is so much easier in the stomach. I think we talked about this because we, we had mentioned the women's health um, professionals were the first ones to jump on that and start to
1: really utilize this new right.
0: alternate day Once a day, you know, or once every other day dosing. I think
1: last time we talked about this, I told the story about how when I started taking a daily multivitamin, like, because I was trying to be a good human being. Uh I don't, I didn't eat breakfast at the time. Yeah. Like just in general. And uh, it caused me to have like really bad um, nausea. And I remember just being over the sink, just like retching. (laughs) And I did this for a couple of weeks until I thought... Maybe it's this stupid multivitamin that's useless. That's absolutely useless, and zapping me of my electrolytes. But the the you know you are made to feel like you need to take something like that. And Cole, who's making making you feel like that? You know, who's bullying you? TV and commercials. You
0: gotta tell them to stop. It's the TV. The next thing, next Centrum Silver commercials. (laughs) Next thing you you know, Cole be taking Prevagen too.
1: The Centrum Silver commercials. The bar starts at red and then goes up to green. And you want to be green, so you, you need do. to take the multivitamin.
0: I guess. Unless green means sick, then. <laughs> Which <laughs> they kind I mean, of. Green means over the If Honestly, they kind of nailed iron it. In there. You, you yeah. really can't say it's false advertising. They gave you exactly what you had asked for. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, no one to blame but yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, This so, was like, you know. Well, a decade ago, it's funnier if I think uh, it's yesterday.
1: I've lived and learned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funnier to me now if, if I think it was last week. You were <laughs> having an internal debate about vitamins. <laughs> That's better. It makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. Oral formulations that are available. Ferric sulfate is. By, you know, most standards, I would say pretty uh, much the, the go-to option over-the-counter um, comes as a 325 milligram option typically, which is 65 milligrams of elemental iron. And uh, they do have an ER formulation, slow FE, that basically is, uh, it's claim to fame is t- to reduce the side effects of, you know, the impact on the stomach and all that. Um, hit or miss as far as whether that actually helps or not. Uh, I guarantee that every other day dosing will help significantly more than just trying to give slow FE a couple times a day. Uh, there's also some other options as well. There's like ferrous fumarate, which is a uh, just another version of iron that 324 milligrams of ferrous fumarate equals 106 milligrams of elemental iron. Ferrous gluconate is available as well. Um, so 324 milligrams of gluconate is 38 milligrams of elemental iron. I, ferrous gluconate by the way <laughs> not, not gluconate and then there's also a uh, another version but Acufor is another uh, oral iron option that's fairly new um ferric maltol. and then there's things like new iron which is a polysaccharide iron complex and some other fancy ones to be honest with you the the vast majority of patients are going to do just fine on ferrous sulfate and the others that try to be less side effect you know prone if you use ferrous sulfate every other day you'll be good to go yeah you know, as far as side effects typically
1: yeah. Um, but there are some situations where oral iron is not going to get the job done and you need to use parental iron therapy or IV iron. Um, there's various recommendations out there. Um, if you look on up to date, here's kind of the situations that they recommend if you're considered to have severe iron deficiency. Um, so a TSAT, less than 12%. Uh, severe anemia, hemoglobin, less than 7% um, if the patients are asymptomatic. Uh, risk of ongoing blood loss, um, like a patient with uh, chronic ongoing gastrointestinal blood loss. Uh, If they have a history of side effects that are intolerable to oral iron, I would say that if they're taking 200 milligrams a day and are having side effects, you probably shouldn't stick an IV in them, but go for the alternate day lower dosing route. Um, Or if they have historically not responded well to oral iron to a significant degree, then you could consider these parenteral options. Yeah, and there are a few different options.
0: Um, there's th- the newest one uh, is the monoferic, which was approved in January of 2020, and it was the first like FDA approved single dose um, option for for parental iron. But there's been several that have been used, you know, or at, le- at least one that's been used uh, historically is a single dose off label. So there are other ways to do that if if pricing is an issue. Um, and then there's things like uh, ferric gluconate. There's iron sucrose and some other options as well. So if iron is has been tried, and, and the, to go back real quick, you know, when we talk about using iron before an ESA, the thought is that if we can give them iron, maybe it will bring their hemoglobin up a little bit on its own, and they won't need an ESA, and they, or they can at least hold off on it. Now, you know, the other issue is that if you start an ESA, they, that could potentially... Um, create a problem where you can't release the iron quick enough in order to interact with the, all the synthetic ESA that you're putting in the system. And that can just further worsen an iron deficiency issue anyway. And then you're right back to where you started. So start with iron and then go on to the ESAs. And it, you know, ESAs are definitely not, uh, without, you know, concern or without worry as far as monitoring and long-term complications. And so there are certain indications that you want to make sure the patient, you know, Meets uh, or certain criteria rather that patient meets before starting them on one of these. So if a patient is is non hemodialysis patient, hemoglobin less than ten, and uh, if the patient is on hemodialysis, sometimes they'll let it go a little bit lower, like you know nine to ten range. um, Ideally, you know letting it not fall below nine. They also want to make sure that the um, tsat is above 20 and the ferritin is um, above 100. Sometimes they even use 200 as a cutoff for that to make sure that the patient would not benefit from iron first. It's just another check to make sure you're not skipping the iron part. And then if uh, the patient is a candidate, um, you also want to assess their medical history for any type of, of active malignancy or um, even a recent malignancy, um, you know especially if, if a cure is anticipated, and then also history of stroke. And then if the patient is bedbound or you know has overall limited functional capacity, they have dementia, anybody that basically is unlikely to benefit from their anemia being corrected. Um, those patients w- should not be
1: started on an ESA. Right. Um, so indications, kind of touching on that again, non-hemodialysis patient, hemoglobin less than 10. Hemodialysis patient, consider if hemoglobin is 9 to 10 to avoid falling below 9. Um, there are a couple of options to be aware of. Um, Epogen, also branded as Procrit, which is epoetin alpha, and then Aranesp, which is Darbepoetin. Uh, with epigen, it's 50 to hundred units per kilogram per week. Um, you can consider a lower starting dose if the baseline hemoglobin is closer to 10. Generally in practice, patients are often dosed by unit dosing. So, um, like 4,000 to 10,000 units once a week or 10,000 to 20,000 units once every other week with Aranesp, it's 40 to hundred micrograms sub Q, uh, every two to four weeks. Um, for both of these, you want to use the lowest dose you can that will work. Uh, doses of 10,000 units per week or um, equivalent, darbepoetin associated. associated um, they are associated with increased mortality and in cardiovascular events, regardless of what the hemoglobin is. So like Mike said, they don't come without their concerns.
0: Yeah, and the other question is, what kind of a target hemoglobin should we be using? And there's been several studies that have looked at this. Um, one that I think we mentioned this in the uh, anemia episode anyway, but one study back in 20, uh, 2006, rather, on New England Journal of Medicine, it was called the Choir Trial. And it was looking at the, this scenario where we were trying to find the optimal. Um, Hemoglobin level to you know when correcting anemia in a patient with CKD. And so we had one group that their goal was 13.5. The another group was 11.3. And the primary outcome uh, was the composite death uh, MI hospitalization for heart failure or stroke. And seventeen point five percent versus thirteen point five percent, which was statistically significant um, for the uh, more normalized hemoglobin. So the uh, the thought is we do not want to ever normalize the hemoglobin with ESAs. And if the if the hemoglobin goes up naturally, and you're not on an ESA, that's fine. But if you're on an ESA, we do not want to, uh, push the the dose up because um, we do know that ESAs can increase the risk of thrombotic events and hypertension and definitely lead to worse cardiovascular outcomes. And they even carry a box warning that says uh, not to go uh, or the target should not be above eleven. Uh, there are situations where the patient has very low risk and you know is not something that, uh, you know, we're overly worried about in those patients for for having a cardiovascular event or anything. Maybe we can use 11.5 as a goal for those patients, but most patients keep it around 11 and, you know, 10 to, like I said, max 11.5 is usually where we want the, the hemoglobin to stay. Lowest effective dose, like Cole said, and then watch the blood pressure and, you know, their cardiovascular issues, put them on a statin if they're supposed to be on
1: one, Right, protect the heart. Okay, metabolic acidosis. Yes, it's a good
0: one to cover.
1: So, this is another complication of anemia, Um, I mean, of CKD that we're going to cover. The risk increases as CKD progresses. About 18% of patients with stage 3B CKD, uh, and then 30% of patients with stage 4 CKD. So, the risk is going to increase as they worsen. Consider treatment when um, the bicarb level um, is less than 23. Um, so that would be the CO2 on a BMP. And this is per the 2013 Kadaigo guidelines. Um, uh, the 2020 kadoki guidelines would say less than 24 uh, for the bicarb. The goal bicarb is around 23 to 29 based on the 2013 Kadaigo guidelines and 24 to 26 based on the um, kadoki guidelines of 2020.
0: Yeah, the old Kadoki guidelines—they they're they're a lot tighter control. Though. Could you imagine having to keep the bicarb level consistently between twenty four and 26? Two, that's
1: two milliequivalents that's, per liter.
0: That's uh, not a lot of wiggle room. No, kodoki what are you doing to us? No.
1: Well, Codaigo just needs to come out with something a little more recent than 10 years ago. Okay, listen, they're busy. (laughs)
0: They got things going on. I checked with them. They're they're working on some (laughs) cool stuff. So you just be patient. Now, uh, treatment-wise, if we do have a patient with a low bicarb level, uh, we can just replenish that with sodium bicarb, usually 650 milligrams is the dose that it's available as. Uh, You can do this two to three times a day, and the patient can take a max of 1950 milligrams three times a day. Now, keep in mind that each tablet does contain 7.7 milliequivalents of sodium um, along with the 7.7 milliequivalents of bicarb. And so the sodium content obviously can lead to some adverse effects, including pulmonary edema, hypernatremia, can cause peripheral edema, obviously. Also, these are known to cause GI intolerance. And if the patient does have a history of of heart failure with the extra sodium in their system and whatnot, um, it could increase the, the risk of a heart failure exacerbation. And overall, we would want to correct the bicarb level you know, if it's low because we've seen that it delays CKD progression and, and delays the you know, the need for um, dialysis. It also improves overall nutritional status. It also has the uh, at least potential to decrease the risk of fractures, um, along with other things that we're about to talk about. Yep. But before we do that, and before we forget the password for the post activity test. Is renal yes. R E N A L all caps, and Perfect. so that yes, that'll give you access to the the ten question multiple choice post activity test exam whatever you
1: want to call it. There you Good. go. Good. Back uh, to you. Don't fail. <laughs> After these messages, <laughs> back to you, Jim. Um, I
0: <sighs> wish we had a person that did our messages for. Like we a, could have we could have a
1: core consult RX um, person on the street.
0: <laughs> oh man, that would be a good series. They're like, who? <laughs> yeah, we don't get anybody. Just, ask,
1: just asking a question. What do say, you think? Well, yeah,
0: what do you think about CKDA?
1: What do you think about the Kidoki guidelines? Are they too tight? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that'd be that would get and the t- guys like literally. Well, the Kodigo guidelines
0: just need to be updated. And then I'll. Could you imagine? That would be the worst show ever, <laughs> by far. <laughs> Six people would watch that just to like make fun of it. Basically.
1: You ever see that Billy on the Street show? Mm. With that guy, oh, I can't remember his, his, his name. Billy. But... Yeah, Billy. Uh, God. You would know him.
0: Eilish? <laughs> no. Different person. <laughs> Different. Oh, she's thing. a singer. Yeah, she's not a, on the street. Oh,
1: no, that's what I think of every time. He runs around with a microphone, but the cord is cut with a long cord. I don't know. Oh.
0: It was kind of funny. Yeah. It was. A, that sounds like a good
1: 90s bit. <laughs> or
0: early 2000s bit. Was it that long ago? No. No.
1: Probably... Seven years ago. Really? I bet it was like 2012. Was it like, like a late night show thing like skit? Or was it a whole show? I don't know what it aired on. I don't even know what I watched on. It would just come on sometimes. Hmm. Billy. I'll, I'll give you his well, I name to, Yeah, that. I had to find some, some clips of that. What I can remember is in the live action Lion King, he played Timon. Oh. Uh, does that answer your question? No, it does not. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> all right, never mind. So
0: I, I do appreciate some <laughs> additional info, just though. Just give you some context. No, I appreciate okay. that. That's good.
1: Very thorough. Okay, so uh, mineral and bone disorders and CKD. Um, so there's a, a complex interaction of hyperphosphatemia, hypocalcemia, low active vitamin D, and hyperparathyroidism um, with the whole um, bone osteoporosis uh, parathyroid gland. Um, uh, complex. Uh, complex. There you go. We, talked through, it very, we with... talked through it very thoroughly in our osteoporosis episode. So if you want a refresher, go back there and don't make me reprise. No, it.
0: Did we do it in our osteoporosis? I don't think we did. I think you're mixing up episodes now, man. We, We're I,
1: both tired today, I can tell. Did we not do osteoporosis? We did, but no, we, we did. didn't We
0: didn't discuss this part. This you is sure This did? is renal. I mean, I don't think we did. Okay. Maybe we did. I don't know. I know we talked about it in a patient case or something recently. I know it this, doesn't matter. I know this <laughs> is
1: renal, but I thought we touched on the um the cycle because it's- Maybe. You know, I don't know. The kidneys are involved in, in osteoporosis.
0: I can't I remember that. I, I can't remember what we talked about now.
1: I swear we touched on it. I remember talking about
0: it. Hmm. Okay. Well, then- I t- I believe you. I, I don't know wow. you, I don't know you to lie about topics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean
1: at least I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, the
0: uh, yes um anyways it's definitely a uh, a complex thing to to get your head around I feel like. So it is. it's a good thing to go over again anyway. There's
1: some nice images out there though. Um, it, there's it's associated with electrolyte abnormalities, worsening CKD, bone breakdown, fracture, increased mortality. CKD is um and uh, there's a few mechanisms. Vitamin D can't be activated, leading to calcium not being absorbed. And this is why it came up in the osteoporosis episode. Um, high um, or lo- high, low calcium causing increases in um, parathyroid hormone. Um, calcium reabsorption is not able to increase like normal. And then calcium is pulled from the bone. And so this can be a part of the bone breakdown process and lead to an increased risk of osteoporosis.
0: And yeah, I'll show for those of you who are, again, watching the video version, I'll put this um, diagram on there, this infographic, if you will. But uh, basically, um, like Cole said, just just showing that when phosphate is elevated, and it can lead to that elevation in PTH. When calcium is decreased, when vitamin D is decreased, that can also lead to that elevation in PTH, and uh, that has various effects, you know, on the body, including like Cole was talking about that increased osteoclast activation and you know causing that bone uh, breakdown to get to the to, to release that calcium back into central circulation. So the big thing to consider is if when you're dealing with a patient you know who has CKD and you're you know working them up, usually you will get a phosphate level, you'll uh, or a phosphorus level, you'll get a um, serum parathyroid level, uh, and then you're you'll have your calcium and whatnot as well, obviously from your, your CMP. but uh, we typically will start off with the phosphate first. so we want to clear the, phos- the excess phosphate from the system, see if that brings the patient's PTH down and um, you know, then we can go from further if we need to from there. So if a patient has um, a serum phosphate level uh, of above 4.5, basically, then we oftentimes want to use, I'm, I'm sorry, if they have a, if it's less than point four point five, we can get away with dietary modification. And if it is, Uh, something where it's above that we end up probably needing some medication, especially if it's above 5.5 persistently, Um, you know, despite some dietary restrictions and whatnot, then you may end up having to uh, be on medication, unfortunately. But my phosphate intake is around 900 milligrams per day in these patients. And, um, you know, we want to, do that as long as we can. We can accomplish it without compromising nutritional status. So it may include the uh, the help of a dietitian and uh, making sure that yeah uh, you know, we we utilize our our colleagues there because I don't know about you but I'm not going to be a good person to consult someone on phosphate low
1: diets. It's not my expertise. If no. you had to ask me what was high or low in phosphate, I'm guessing broccoli.
0: That sounds familiar. It, but yeah. But that probably is more more fuss. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I realized I as know. I started to be confidently answering just one thing because I said broccoli <laughs> has a lot of good stuff in it. I'm like, I don't have know anything about <laughs> no phosphate. Clue. You're right. Okay, so like we said, consult dieticians so you don't look stupid like I just did.
1: But in the instance that the dietary modification is not so effective, like Mike said, we might have to use medication. So there's a few um, types of phosphate. Binders. Uh, yeah. There's calcium-based phosphate binders.
0: And, and sorry, real quick, Cole, because I don't. Want to, I know I misspoke oh, earlier. Sure. Greater than six is the the absolute cutoff when you're supposed to start the phosphate binder. Above five point five, like I mentioned, that's when you can consider them. But above six, in the phosphate levels, you need to go ahead and start a phosphate binder. Sorry. Good. Cool. That's no, fine. Back, greater, back to you.
1: Greater than six, you can consider one of a few phosphate binders. Some are the calcium-based phosphate binders, like calcium carbonate, which we know to be Tums and the various generics. Also branded as OSCAL. And then calcium acetate, which is FOSLO. So the acetate version is preferred. Um, it seems to be more effective. There's less hypercalcemia associated with it, and it increases bicarbonate. Um uh, they're pretty well tolerated, but there can be some adverse effects like hypercalcemia I mentioned, um, especially if there's concomitant use of vitamin D. Uh, it's going to result in increased calcium absorption with the the flow chart that Mike went through, um, a dynamic bone disease, and vascular calcification possibly. Um, but one advantage uh, of, of these could be that they're low cost and easy to titrate the dose with these. Yeah, and I, again,
0: th- those adverse effects are more so from... Getting excessive, you know, calcium in your system and other issues that can go wrong to. Those are the the more the dynamic bone disease and whatnot. Are obviously, going to be a lot more of a rare right. condition because I'm gonna I have that listed for um, those as well. Then, in, if calcium binders are or calcium based binder phosphate binders are not, um, what you're you know, looking for are not ideal for the patient. And in fact, a lot of patients do not like those because you have to dose them multiple times a day. Um, the calcium acetate is, uh, you know. It, pretty large cat tablets that patients have to deal with, and, and a lot of them just don't want to have to take that, that many tablets. And so we have our non-calcium-based phosphate binders. So we have Um, um We have both sevelomere carbonate and hydrochloride. The uh, carbonate is typically preferred uh, because the uh, hydrochloride can cause some issues with metabolic acidosis as well as uh, more severe issues with GI intolerance. And these are, are probably the go-to options for a lot of patients, assuming that you know they're covered by insurance and everything. Um, they do have a contraindication to if the patient has a active bowel obstruction. Obviously, we do not want to use anything that could uh, cause you know GI issues. And then it also you know obviously can absorb uh, your fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin D, E, and K, can it reduce dietary absorption of folic acid. So being aware of that if the patient has any kind of malnutrition issues or anything. And then other uh, adverse effects, dyspepsia, abdominal pain, flatulence can be factors as well. And then there are some common drug interactions to worry about, the big one being levothyroxine, and then also uh, tetracyclines, fluoroquinolones can interact with these, these guys as well.
1: Yep. Uh, there's a few other options. Um, Phosphorhenol, which is um, the brand for lanthanum carbonate. It's a chewable tablet that's a little more expensive um, compared to calcium-containing phosphate binders. Um, it seems to be associated with lower incidence of um, over suppressing the parathyroid hormone levels, uh, which is good. It does have some um, adverse effects: nausea, vomiting, GI issues, um, abdominal pain. There's also Velforo, which is sucroferric oxyhydroxide. It's indicated for dialysis dependent patients. Uh, it's comparable to Svelamer in efficacy and safety. Um, and it could be associated with a lower pill bur- burden than savelomere. There's eryxia, which is ferric citrate, um, has some adverse effects of diarrhea, constipation. It can also just color feces black. Um, and um, notably, it can increase iron absorption. So, dialysis patients receiving IV iron would need to be monitored closely if they're taking eryxia. Yeah. I've seen that a few times. So, we've
0: corrected the phosphorus. So
1: PTH
0: is, if it is still elevated at this point, because remember high phosphate levels will increase a patient's parathyroid hormone. And so if we're trying to Fix the parathyroid hormone. We would start with phosphorus, even if parathyroid is, is normal. Though we still would fix the phosphorus if it's if it's elevated. You know, it just probably wouldn't work out like that. And uh, so, if the patient does, you know, have their phosphorus elevated, we fix that first. If the parathyroid hormone is still elevated, then it, the next thing would be um, to p- consider a um, potential a- vitamin D analog, uh, which is different from our traditional like D3, D2 that we get over the counter, D2 being you know plant sterols being uh, the primary source of uh, you know, dietary vitamin D and whatnot, and then vitamin D3 being the type that's synthesized in, in the skin and exposure to ultraviolet light but those are not activated vitamin D you need a true vitamin D analog which has already been activated and uh, because if the patient does have CKD they, there could be a chance that we give them D2 D3 and it does not get activated you know because the In order for those to be activated, it has to go through the liver first and then the kidney. Two different hydroxylation reactions, and the kidneys not function. If it's not there, it's not going to activate the vitamin D. So vitamin D analogs are already activated vitamin D that you can just administer, and the patient automatically will start being able to use that uh, to absorb calcium better. So the options out there, I would say the vast majority of patients um, are on calcitriol, at least in my you know experience. And uh, it's typically dosed to start off with, Depending again, depending on how high the, the PTH level is and whatnot. Typically start off with three times weekly dosing and then um, increase from there. And there's uh, some other ones as, as well, um, calcifidiol and a couple others. But uh, calcitriol is probably the easiest one to get access to as far as cost and all that. Some contraindications to keep in mind, if the patient has an elevated phosphate level, stop, fix that first, and then come back to these options if PTH is still high. And if the corrected serum total calcium concentration is 9.5 or higher, then we also don't want to start one of these drugs because we expect the calcium to go up once they start it. And then uh, adverse effects, obviously, hypercalcemia, no um, surprise there, they... Can also cause hyperphosphatemia, though, which then can cause problems with our phosphate binder if we're having to use one of those, um, or cause the phosphate to go high if it hasn't been already, and then um, some nausea, vomiting, things like that. So, making sure patients take it on empty stomach, or a, you know, not an empty stomach, is is um, advisable.
1: Yeah, um, and like you said, calcium trials by far the most common calcifediol sounds like somebody trying to pronounce calcitriol incorrectly. (laughs) Um, but they are all considered equally effective. All are expensive except calcitriol is, is somewhat less expensive. Um, don't use vitamin D supplements, the plant serols, the D2, the D3.
0: Yeah. That's what I was just talking about in the other thing.
1: I just got ahead of ourselves. Right. Along with that. Um, yeah. And, um, it's not going to help you too much. No, it'd be, uh, it's just going to, it's going to get
0: one hydroxylation reaction in the liver and then it's just going to be chilling out in the kidneys. Not the second. So, um, if this is where it gets a a little, even more confusing because again, we're trying to, we fix the phosphate first that brings down PTH, um, hopefully. And then if that PTH is still elevated, calcium is, you know, low side of normal or low, then we would give the vitamin D analog to try to bring that parathyroid level down and that calcium up at the same time, we may end up causing us to either overshoot the calcium and cause it to go too high, like we just talked about, or the phosphorus to go high as well. And, um, you know, we may end up needing something like a calcium emetic to sort of smooth everything back back out again. Um, calcium emetics, sensipar is the the most common one um, that's used. And I will say that uh, I, I don't know that I've ever even seen um, Persevive out ever. Um, Have you?
1: No. But
0: mechanistically, these are kind of cool because they they will activate the calcium sensing receptor on a parathyroid gland. And that is going to help to reduce PTH, phosphorus, and calcium. So like I said, it kind of helps to smooth things over again. So I think about it in patients and and, uh, UpToDate does have a good article on this where they kind of explain, you know, the triple therapy in some patients being necessary. And it's, it's for a patient who's parathyroid hormone is still a little bit high and you know calcium is low after starting a phosphate binder phosphate's corrected already and then we do something like a vitamin d analog the calcium goes too high phosphorus maybe bumps up a little bit pth is still not where we want it to be and so now we can come in and correct the side effects of the other meds and bring down the parathyroid level and hopefully get all those back in normal range but probably going to be a lot of uh, back and forth and starting and stopping and modifying as we go to try to keep the balance good. It's not usually smooth sailing um, for keeping those levels consistent. Right. um, These do have some adverse effects. Um, Obviously they can cause hypocalcemia and so the, Lots of monitoring involved in keeping that balance, like we were just saying. And then uh, GI issues, fatigue, um, and it can really wipe out your appetite as well. And, you know, mostly because of the, the GI effects, but it can lead to, you know, patients having unwanted weight loss. And then, uh, um, Senecalcet is the, is Sensipar. You should use caution if a patient has a uh, history of seizures. And, um, Per-Saviv, you should. Uh, Use caution if the patient has a history of heart failure because it can uh, cause a worsening of their heart failure, left ventricular hypertrophy.
1: Right. Um, If the phosphorus is still above goal, increase the phosphate binder dose with meals or switch to a more effective phosphate binder?
0: And this is just, this is kind of summarized, to to clarify, because I actually wrote this slide that calls going off of so i want to clarify because i wrote it kind of stupid um full disclosure but uh the phosphorus goal that he's talking about this is like some strategies if you're still working on the phosphate side of things trying to manage that before moving on to other agents Um, if the phosphorus is not where you need it to be it's not down far enough then these what he's talking about is uh there's some strategies to to use right so sorry um go ahead cool
1: Thank you for the context.
0: Yeah, 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 I just felt like it was necessary because I'm looking at it going, what am I talking about?
1: Uh, well, in this instance, you'd also uh, could try stopping vitamin D, stopping any vitamin D If analogues. they are on them, yeah. Right. Um, like we mentioned, until it said gold. Because that will make
0: the phosphate go up.
1: Right. Um, we didn't really talk about corrected calcium, um, but uh, that's calcium that is um, uh, adjusted based on the albumin level. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's greater than 9.5 milliequivalents per deciliter, switch the calcium phosphate binders to non-calcium binders. Stop the vitamin D analogs until it's less than 9.5, then restart at half the dose. Or consider the um, calcium medic addition to lower the calcium and parathyroid hormone. Yes.
0: Lots of monitoring,
1: lots of back and forth. So
0: phosphate binders, vitamin D analogs, calcium emetics, maybe on the trifecta just kind of depends on the, the patient. Mm-hmm. All right, so we do have some other things we want to encourage patients to do that have CKD that can hopefully slow their progression. Obviously, controlling blood pressure and blood glucose are huge. If you have a patient with uncontrolled either of those, you know it's going to definitely increase the chances of their CKD progressing. If they have uh, albuminuria, obviously managing that and giving proper medications to reduce that, if possible, and also remembering to actually monitor for it in the first place and then if the patient is a smoker encouraging smoking cessation um, encouraging you know diet modifications and besides phosphorus we also would want to watch our salt intake our protein intake if the patient has a really heavy protein diet and then also just maintaining an overall healthy body weight. Uh, if the patient has issues with their lipids, making sure they get put on statin therapy or you know whatever their indication is, um, watching their bicarb level to prevent that metabolic acidosis. And then also a, a big thing to remind patients is avoiding nephrotoxic drugs, and you know looking for any type of uh, you know over the counter herbal supplement anything like that that could end up. Causing nephrotoxicity if taken in, you know, high enough quantities or, or for long enough. NSAIDs is, is a classic example of one that gets overlooked
1: all the time. Yep. So
0: making sure patients avoid those is
1: very important. Right. More specifically with hypertension, um, the CODAGO guidelines um, recommend a goal systolic blood pressure less than 120 mil- or one hundred twenty millimeters of mercury when a patient has CKD. And we've talked about the goal blood pressures um, extensively in other podcasts and they specifically are talking about individuals with ckd having a goal less than 120 yeah. um, agents to use that we referenced at the top um aces and arbs can have a dose dependent proteinuria reduction um, we also know that with um, the initiation of them they can also cause an uh, acute kidney injury so you want to monitor for that but long term they can be beneficial second line um thiazide diuretics or calcium channel blockers depending on the ability to use the ACE or ARB, uh, which is a, a reference to not using a um, calcium channel blocker uh, alone. You would want to use an ACE or ARB, so you're dilating the appropriate arterials.
0: Afferent and efferent together, or dilation, or at least the efferent arterial, you'd be good to go. Yeah, um the lipid management is something that is uh, a little bit controversial as far as like the you know whether or not it slows the progression or anything. We don't see any good evidence that it truly slows the progression of kidney disease, but it, it still can lower cardiovascular events, which is always something we would want to encourage. And um, uh, you know, patients that are not on dialysis definitely should be offered a statin if they're a candidate for one. Um, the data is a little bit more. Um, murky and potentially even shows even some potential harm if the patient is on dialysis and has never been on a statin and gets started on one but uh you know if, the, if you have a patient and you're trying to decide and you know you're not sure yeah you know, obviously consult their nephrologist before starting it right if you're if there's some some concern
1: and definitely keep an eye out for um dose adjustments that need to happen um yeah i mean in a lot of instances the emr will catch it Flag but it. not always so um just be aware and make sure if you see a drug that you think i think that this <laughs> is one that is adjusted but you know maybe it didn't get caught somewhere just double check and, i love the example
0: sure. that was good yes you like you let's just say, say you're thinking you're looking at a patient's chart <laughs> you're like, right? you go this doesn't seem you right. know what i think in my heart of hearts <laughs> anyways
1: <laughs> so I, well, i'm trying to think of a situation where it wouldn't have gotten flagged yeah you know what i mean the only reason I might not have is if their credit clearance is just not in whatever program you have. Like if you're at a retail Like pharmacy. at any pharmacy. <laughs> like every pharmacy yeah. that wouldn't have it, right? But you recognize that they have, you know, maybe they're on trial, And you're like, I wonder why they're on trial. Like,
0: I hope it's not kidney disease. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the exact thing it is. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, obviously, uh, in, if
0: you're a pharmacist in an care setting, that should be a big thing you're monitoring for because you will have that information. Yes. So good stuff, good stuff. All right, and we didn't forget the password today. I'm proud of us. I don't think we've forgotten the password in a little bit now. I almost
1: said it, but I guess I'm not supposed to spoil it at the end. Yeah. It's back in the middle. you got to find it. <laughs> <laughs> not quite in the middle, somewhere. Somewhere in That's there. your one hint. If you fast-forwarded to <laughs> the end to find out. Too bad. Too bad. <laughs> you got to go find S- it. Sucker.
0: All right. Um, thank you guys so much. Make sure you take advantage of the the continuing education opportunity. Check out freece.com. Um, if you're not a member, d- definitely encourage you to uh, consider it. And it's definitely uh, financially better to do the, the annual membership, I believe, uh, than you know, buying Various pieces of the you know content that you're looking for individually. Uh, definitely get your all-access pass. So thanks to them for continuing to work with us. Also, um, thanks to the Drug Info app, Pearls, for uh, being a continued sponsor with us. It's uh, pearls.com slash core consult rx pearls is also spelled p-y-r-l-s um so go to that website you can sign up for free and get access to some diabetes and some other pharmacotherapy uh, treatment you know flow charts and uh, if you don't like the app you can cancel it and you don't have to actually pay anything for it and if you do like it there's a, a paid version that unlocks all of their information and has stuff updated all the time they're doing some good stuff Also, if you want more traditional style uh, lectures and PowerPoints and all that good stuff, check out the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. It's where I put all of the uh, pharmacotherapy lectures on there and copies of the PowerPoints. And if you join now as a annual uh, member and not just month to month, then you will get a copy of High Powered Medicine, Evidence-Based Recommendations for Optimizing Pharmacotherapy in Chronic Disease States. So it's it's a summary of several different landmarks clinical trials, and uh, they have over 150 summaries in there and, and really good reference to, to utilize. So thanks to the author, Alex Poppin, for sponsoring the podcast and giving you guys access to that for, the, for all you annual members. Um, and uh, if you have signed up as an annual member and, I, and you have not gotten access to the book, definitely let me know, and uh, I'll take care of that. Contact me and Cole, email the phone number in the show notes. Uh, You can send us a message on any of the social media platforms, whatever is to your liking. We uh, will try to do better about responding. I know I've been um, really busy, so I'm not as quick to respond. Cole has been busy too, so I apologize, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely get back to you guys as quick as we can. Thanks for sticking with us. Appreciate it. See you next time.